Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? It was a blowout for Ferrari in Baku. I would not want to be a shareholder in the colour red roundabout now. But it was a Domenica of joy for Red Bull. And it's lights out and away we go and Charles Leclerc gets away well, as does Sergio Perez and he's coming right at him now. As in the turn one, Leclerc locks up, Perez goes into the lead, Verstappen holds off Carlos Sainz and it's Sergio Perez, winner last time out, who leads him. Carlos Sainz looks like he stopped at turn four. And Charles Leclerc comes into the pit, so an immediate strategy gamble here. Here come the two Red Bulls, free to fight. Perez, Verstappen makes the move, makes it clean and overtakes Sergio Perez and into the lead. And here goes Lewis Hamilton, down the inside on Esteban Ocon. Oh. oh no, and there we have a blowout coming down the Leclerc. straight, and that is Charles Leclerc. Leclerc has an engine failure, as here comes Lewis Hamilton on Daniel Ricciardo. Breezes down the inside, and he's up into fifth place. It's Baku, and it's back to the top step of the podium for Max Verstappen, who wins the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors Podcast, and I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer and serial podcaster Joe Spagnoli. Mysterious F1 Twitter menace unpaid intern is still doing his paid interning, but he will be back with us soon. So, chaps, how are we feeling? Did we enjoy Baku? Ed, what did you think? It wasn't too bad. It was away from us about the poison. It's how volatile it looked on the front straight, and Max Verstappen took another huge leap to take that championship lead. Ed, uh, did, did you just say poisoning? Sorry, poisoning. I'm not. I can't let this go. Poor poisoning. Poor poisoning. Very good point. Interestingly made and very poorly pronounced. But yeah, I feel like most of the conversation following that race is around poor poisoning. Um, it would seem, but it was quite a disappointing race for one team in particular. Joe Spagnoli is probably not feeling very good this week after seeing both Ferraris DNF in a cataclysmic failure of engineering. Um, how do you feel, Joe? Are you quite angry? Are you more angry or sad? I feel like you're more angry. Well, I don't have a direct stake in the Ferrari Formula One team. And if I did, I would I would be considering selling my shares almost immediately. That was about as bad of a weekend as you could possibly imagine. I mean, in qualifying, you get that surprise pole. I mean, not necessarily surprised in the sense that Charles Leclerc took a pole. He's taken six of eight so far this year. But for the, for the engines to pack up so early, Carlos Sainz hydraulics problem lap eight, Charles Leclerc packing up lap 20, both well before the halfway point. I've been trying to work out among various friends in the Formula One viewing community, when was the last time that one single engine caused so much damage over the space of one weekend? Because McLaren Honda, that car was fourth or fifth best at best in terms of chassis. They weren't exactly losing a ton of points as a result of the engine. Ferrari, they lost 
a guaranteed podium in Charles Leclerc, what could have been a win, a likely fourth place or better for Carlos Sainz. And then it wiped out their customer teams. Guan Yu Zhou, for the first time this season, outperforming Valtteri Bottas, on for points in Baku. We didn't get to see it because his engine packed up Kevin Magnussen in the Haas, making progress in the middle of the field, showing up Mick Schumacher yet again. We couldn't see his progress because his Ferrari engine let him down. In the whole of the hybrid era, for all the criticism of McLaren Honda, of the early uh, the early Renault engines towards the beginning of the era, I don't think anything comes close to the catastrophe Ferrari had this weekend. I guess we all thought that their issues were mostly done, right? They had that horrific year where everything seemed to be going wrong. And then this year, you know, it's been looking up. The guys have been doing great. But this, if this is going to be their reliability going forward, then they're going to have some major, major problems because that's complete, that's abysmal, to be honest. And I will touch, you mentioned Guan Yu Zhou, and I feel like we don't actually talk about him that much on the podcast, and we should. But he's had, I feel, quite an unlucky season in general. I feel like there's been a few DNFs for him that were kind of not of any real fault of his own. But he's had reliability issues, and I, I just feel like we're not seeing very much from him, which is a shame. Obviously, a lot of people were very excited about him coming into the sport, but it doesn't seem to be going too well for him. But Ed, what do you think about these reliability issues, Ferrari? Do you think they've just, have they binned the championship now? Have they lost all hope? I don't think it's fully over yet, but it is a huge blow considering that Red Bull took maximum points and Ferrari came away with nil point. It's been a bad run of form since, since Australia. And to be honest with you, it seems like their rivals have caught up and the fact that Ferrari have had some rather catastrophic and reliability issue. You look at uh, you look at Spain, for example, Leclerc would have been on for 25 points, gone, engine blows. Monaco, they had a complete palaver with the strategy. They called Leclerc at the wrong time. They lost an easy one to thought, which became a one free for them. That's another 25 points gone. Now there's potentially a grid penalty for Leclerc. It could get a lot worse. But as I said, the championship isn't over until Plump Race Director waves to check a flag on the season finale. There is still hope that they can win the championship. So, still hope for the Tifosi. They, they don't have to refund their monster tickets just yet. Well, it's nice to put a silver lining on things, isn't it? Let's stop talking about Ferrari. Let's look at some other teams. So, really good result for Mercedes, actually, this weekend. Finishing third and fourth with um, Russell in third on the podium. After the problems they've been having, I think that was probably very nice for them to see. But what wasn't nice to see was Lewis Hamilton clawing his way out of his car, looking like he was made of wood and had been, I don't know, beaten with a stick or something. He really did look to be struggling quite a lot. Joe, do you think that actually we do need a bit of an intervention here? Because a lot of the drivers have been speaking up and we'll talk about this more later. But do you think it's time for this to get? to get sorted for the FIA to intervene or no? When there's a clear safety justification for sorting things out, and I really do believe there is at this point, because by all means, you know, Baku is not even the bumpiest track on the calendar. Sure, it's got a long straight, but it's far from the biggest offender when it comes to the abrasion of the surface. There has to be something done. The issue is, I don't know what the fair and suitable and effective effective solution to all of this would be. I was lucky enough, as I think all of us have now, uh, to listen to Bryson Sullivan at Natural Paradigm speaking on Sky Sports Tech Talk about this. And he describes it perfectly. You can make sizable aerodynamic upgrades to the floor of your car. You'll eliminate porpoising at one weekend. And then at the next venue, it will be infinitely worse. You went, go back to the Spanish Grand Prix. The accelerometer data was revealing that Alpine had by far the worst porpoising that weekend. And Mercedes were comparatively okay. Going into this weekend, whether it was George Russell running the old concept of the car or Lewis Hamilton with the experimental floor, both of them were in severe pain throughout the race. And Lewis Hamilton, you said it looked like he was made of wood. He was in complete agony getting out of that car. And it's getting to the point now where, and I do have sympathy for the people who say it's unfair to punish the likes of Red Bull, um, Alpha Tauri to a lesser extent in recent weeks, teams that have relatively got this porpoising situation right. But I also think there was a real lack of discussion about the factor before the season, despite the fact that the porpoising effect was known, it just wasn't confronted before the homologation of these new rules. I would favour intervention from the FIA, hopefully before even the summer period. I just don't buy this idea of mandatory minimum ride height 
because A, that doesn't necessarily get rid of the problem because it's a multi-physics issue, tires, temperature, air pressure, all these different things, weight, the fundamental component of the car. Um, and you shouldn't have, and, and if you enforce a minimum minimum ride height, that kind of defeats the purpose of the ground effect aerodynamic changes anyway. So yeah, the FIA have got themselves into a bit of a pickle with this, but surely safety has to trump outright performance. Agreed. It's, it's going to be an extremely tricky situation to solve. And I don't envy the people that would have to have that conversation about what is a fair way to rectify this. But I think, as you mentioned, it, this is now a, a safety issue. And I think we've seen in other sports where where things like this have kind of gone under the radar. We saw it with the, the NFL, with head injuries and things like that, and that resulting in lifelong problems for the athletes. And I don't think that any sport, especially if it's something avoidable like this, that the sport you play shouldn't result in in crippling injury in your future. But yeah, like we've been saying, it's not the easiest one to fix, let's be honest. But shall we talk about McLaren? Because there's been a lot of talk about Daniel Ricciardo uh, finally outperforming Lando Norris somewhat, uh, finishing eighth with Norris in ninth. It was nice to see Daniel Ricciardo having a slightly better week, finishing in the points after a disappointing qualifying as well for the guys both going out um, in Q2. It's nice to see a smile back on the Honey Badger's face and see him performing a little bit. Ed, do you think he's maybe finding his stride a bit or is this maybe just a fluke weekend for him? I think it's too early to tell. I think this has been his best, well, this has been his best race since, since Melbourne, but I think we saw a little bit of the old Ricardo back. He seemed much more feisty in the way he was dealing with with Norris and how he was fighting his way through the order. It was a good drive to all extent, and it really is kind of the bit of a booster he needed for after race after race after race after race where he's been told, okay, when are you going? When are you not going? When are you leaving? Who's replacing you? It's a, it's a nice little answer to his critics, but he needs to keep it up now because... You know, you can have one good race and then three bad ones in Formula 1. Every driver seems to have this. And, yeah, he needs to get another top six in Canada. I'll just quickly touch on the porpoising. Yeah, it is a safety issue. Yes, it needs to be sorted. And it needs to be done to help the drivers first and foremost because they're risking their lives getting battered for 50-odd laps. We shouldn't punish teams that have got it right, but we need to come to a consensus that appeals to all. Not just one team or two teams it needs to be for the whole whole enchilada, as uh, Mike Ditko once said. And that, for sure, is uh, easier said than done, most definitely. Now, finishing in sixth and seventh this weekend were the two old heads, if you will, Sebastian Vettel and Fernando Alonso, which I think a lot of people, me included, were really, really happy to see, seeing them comfortably in the top 10 and taking home some nice points and we did see some epic car control from Sebastian Vettel when he locked up a little and then just swung the back of his car around and was straight back onto the track I thought that was pretty impressive Joe yeah it was one of those moments where my opinion of Sebastian Vettel changed about a million times over the course of five seconds because for me personally that move into turn three was never on. It was quite an, an oddly immature decision to go for the move in the first place. I'm thinking, God, Seb, you're too good for this. But then less than two seconds later, he pirouetted the car absolutely perfectly. And you're thinking, yes, this is the racecraft and experience we love to see. I think the most impressive thing about Seb this weekend is just the scale to which he outperformed Lance Stroll. Lance Stroll, who managed to crash twice within about two minutes in qualifying, causing a red flag, which led to a whole host of carnage second half of Q1. I know Seb's good at this track, but even even with that, that Aston Martin should not be doing as well as it did this weekend because the Mercedes cars across the board, Mercedes-powered cars, were pretty down in the speed traps. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Ed, how did you feel seeing Seb back up in sixth place? And also, let's not forget about Alonso in seventh as well. Shows the old Matadors have still got it. It's a pleasure to see these two fighting at the front. Uh, Seb had a fairly good race and would have probably got P5, P4 if he hadn't had that spin, but he gathered it all up nicely and got a good solid haul of points for Aston Martin when you know they were falling a little bit behind, the likes of Haas now from Mayo. Definitely did a better job than Stroll, who unfortunately just couldn't stop crashing this weekend. Um, Alonso, yep, P7 just 
another good solid day at the office for Fernando. He's racking the points up since that rather miserable homecoming in Spain. Now he really would like to start seeing a little bit more growth from Alpine and maybe challenging the likes of Mercedes for a spot on the third row of the grid. So yeah, good good weekend's work for the old Matadors who don't seem like stopping. Now, we mentioned Stroll. Let's talk about Canada and Latifi as well. Let's let's talk Canada and Canadian drivers and predictions for how this is going to go because I think it is a little bit of a cursed thing. Home races in general are a bit of a cursed thing for a lot of drivers. I mean, Charles Leclerc being one of many, but do we think that Latifi and Stroll are suddenly going to pull out a really decent performance out of nowhere when we go to Canada? Or is it going to be equally as tragic as it has been? Does anyone think that they're actually going to pull something decent out of the bag? It's difficult to say just because we have such a small sample size for both of them at this track. It's hard to, it's, you know, it's hard to remember. We actually haven't raced here for the best part of three years. And Nicholas Latifi, at least in Formula One trim, we have never seen him around this track but we haven't he hasn't even been around here in formula two if i remember correctly as for lance stroll you know you're only going back to the beginning of these ultra wide cars there is the threat of rain throughout most of the weekend notably on the race day and with that being the case i would hope for a good performance by lance stroll home conditions and his you know his well-known wet weather acumen however in recent recent races whenever there has been the advent of wet weather lance stroll hasn't exactly been Fantastic. I think back to Monaco in particular. So even if, to be honest though, Shannon, even if they did have a good weekend, they're in an Aston Martin and a Williams. It's not like they're going to be challenging for a top five finish. But you say we haven't seen Latifi around this track, really, not in anything like a Formula One car. Does that mean that technically he could be amazing around this track and actually be fighting for pole position or fighting for a podium? You don't know because you've well, never seen it. What is he, Schrodinger's Joe? racing driver? That doesn't work. <laughs> well, actually, in defence of Nicholas Satifi, he has done an F- a practice session around here in a Formula One car. So he has made an appearance. Was it blisteringly fast? Was it record-breaking? Well, I mean, he had to stop midway through to let a go for some wildlife that exists around the circuit to let him through, but uh, I don't remember that much. I've been to bed since then. Did the gopher outpace him? <laughs> no, the gopher, the gopher was fairly quick. I don't know what it was. It was some random animal which you see run, out, run across the track every year in Montreal. For me, I don't see these two getting on. I, it's it's not going to happen on the podium all of a sudden. If that happens, then I could probably race Katie Ledecky in the 1500-meter freestyle and probably beat her over that distance. And Stroll probably could do with just a point. I think Latifi is probably facing his last Grand Prix weekend, if rumours are to be believed, or two. I think he's going to need to hope the Aston Martin is the better car. But it's going to be a bit of a tricky weekend for the two boys from the Maple Leaf. I think, for me, Stroll will perform a little bit better because he has a bit more experience than Latifi. Latifi doesn't have that much. But again, they will have a little bit of an advantage because of the home crowd, but not that it will count for much. I mean, let's talk about that. Like, how much credence do we really give these rumours that this could be Nicholas Latifi's last race weekend? that he might be getting ditched and replaced with some, I believe Oscar Piastri is the name that's being floated around. How much weight do we actually put behind these rumours, chaps? Joe, what do you think? It seems like particularly cynical timing, you know, we'll let you do your home race, then you're out of the door. I don't, I can't imagine that the sponsor agreements would match up for the Canadian Grand Prix specifically. Like, I can't imagine, okay, it's possible, but it seems highly unlikely to me that this particular phase of the contract would end between Canada and Silverstone. That, to me, just doesn't make any sense. Also, Piastri, granted, Williams have been able to you know, negotiate through team obligations. They've been able to get a Red Bull driver in at the expense of you know, the Mercedes engine supplier. I can't see them managing to get both of their drivers from other academies. It would be a good move for them. Piastri's amazing. We all know that. It's a disgrace he's not in a Formula One car already, but I, I can't see Latifi going until the end of the season anymore. Slim. So obviously something's been going on behind the scenes. There were rumours at the time that Nick DeFries was going to be the one, but you know that's kind of 
still stuck in the car park because of the fact that Dave Robson, the head of vehicle performance at Williams, has said, look, it was his one and only appearance in Barcelona FP1. Agreed. Very much agreed, Mr. Spencer. But now I'm going to tear you away from this and we're going to take a little stroll down Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart onto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Those of you that have been paying attention to the podcast won't have been surprised at all to see Stefano Domenicali meeting with representatives of the Kailami track this week in South Africa, because you'll remember that I reported these rumours a few weeks ago. Word is that we could see the fan favourite location return as early as next year, which will be the music to the ears of many. And drivers across the grid seem to be increasingly struggling with the physical toll porpoising is taking on their bodies, with many speaking up over the weekend and Hamilton struggling to get out of his car due to back pain. Could we see adjustments to the regulations before the season is out? Support seems to be growing for an intervention by the FIA for fear of lasting damage to the drivers, and word on the grid is that conversations are taking place to assess how viable this option is. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. So I know we touched on this earlier, obviously the subject of the porpoising and the driver's backs. So let's not labour on the point too much. But how did we feel to see Mr. Stefano this week at the Kyle Army track meeting with representatives? Possible Kyle Army 2023? Ed, does this excite you? It does, yes. I think Formula One has been long in need to have a race in Africa, bearing in mind. It's been nearly 30 years since we had a proper world championship when, every, when F1 raced on every single continent legally possible. Of course, you couldn't race on Antarctica. Antarctica that would be cynical. Uh, but yeah, it's good news that for, for F1 in South Africa that, it, that there is a potential deal on the table. The only question I have is how much time have they got to get to Kailami up from necessary uh, grade that all circuits grade two, from grade two to grade one which is the must-have to host Formula One Grand Prix. But I would say it's looking good so far. Um, it just obviously they needs to thrash out the money, the money that is needed to, to host such a good, to host such an event. But yeah, things are looking good. Joe, are you looking forward to the possibility of Kyle Army 2023? I'm looking forward more to the concept of South Africa than Kyle Army specifically. Having gone around there in the simulator, it's pretty tight you can i feel like to get grade one it's mostly a facility issue putting the money forward it'll be less less exhaustive than the upgrade that zandvoort had which barely feels like a grade one track even now the track however is pretty narrow it suits a previous generation of formula one cars and this goes against a lot of what i've said about recent tracks but to really celebrate the changes that have happened in south africa over the last 30 years not least the awesome new flag that they have i feel like a street circuit on one of the coastal cities would have been more exciting and more effective. I would have loved to see a race in Cabrera. I've been dying for a Durban Grand Prix circuit for a while as well. It was one of the venues I most wanted on the calendar, especially as a season opener as well, a real party atmosphere in what is basically South Africa's Brighton to kick off the season with a bang. I'll take Kyle Army, but I think it could have been a bit more exciting. Okay, I can get behind that. The problem is we've had these many of these conversations before where we come up with these fantastic ideas for where we could put tracks and where we should be racing. And alas, we're not in charge, so it's probably not going to be happen. I revert back to Ed's Paris Grand Prix agenda. Say, agenda. Uh, you said fantastic ideas. It was a good You're idea. right, I did say fantastic ideas. No, it's it not. A, I, it was a, I, I, take, I take it back. It was a fantastic idea. Until I thought, how is the porpoising going to handle the cobbles of the Champs-Élysées? Take the words right out of my mouth, why don't you? If they're porpoising in Baku, what would that even look like on Paris's cobbles? I mean, I don't even want to imagine what that would look like, to be honest. I think Lewis Hamilton would sue you if that was the case, and he would be right to for damages. But now it is time, Mr. Spencer, to take a little walk down memory lane with you and uh, step into history. We're going to look back with Ed. To finish first, first you have to finish. That may seem like a plainly obvious statement that everyone could have come up with, but for one Brit, it came back to bite him. This is the story of how Nigel Mansell 
snatch the jaws of defeat from the hands of victory. Round five of the 1991 Formula One World Championship saw the series head to Canada for its third flyaway of the season. And after a reasonably tame Monaco Grand Prix, which saw Ayrton retain his 100% winning record, it seemed that the Brazilian would make it five from five. But whilst things were serene at McLaren over at Ferrari, the knives were firmly out, with Cesare Fiorio given the Stevale after Monaco, with a duo consisting of Piero Ferrari and Claudio Lombardi taking over. Not that much would change in outright performance, much to the disappointment of Alain Prost and John Lazy, who were probably starting to wonder if they would ever win a race in 91. Ferrari weren't the only team to make some head office changes, as Benetton's technical director, John Barnard, departed to be replaced by Gordon Kimball. Lotus refreshed their driver lineup as Julian Bailey's cash reserves had went dry, promoting the promising Johnny Herbert back into a full-time race seat. Alex Gaffey joined Bailey on the sidelines after sustaining injuries in a car accident, forcing footwork to draft in Stefan Johansson, who'd been ousted from AGS at the start of the year. Qualifying did shake up the apple cart, as Ricardo Patrese put his Williams on pole ahead of Nigel Mansell. Behind Ricardo Patrese, Ayrton Senna. Behind Mansell is Alain Prost. When the lights went out, Mansell got the better launch and squeezed past Patrese into turn one, while Senna clung on to third as the field came through to complete lap one with, with the only notable other change in the order, being a lazy moving up to fifth whilst Moreno fell to seventh. Even if he got past the struggling Berger on lap two, Piquet flew past his countryman on lap three to take sixth, as Berger fell into the clutches of Stefano Modena. Aguri Suzuki had a fire ex on lap three, as his LaRousse sprung a fuel leak, causing the car to burst into flames. And my goodness, that's a big one! That's not just a gearbox fire and the Japanese driver rushing away from the Lola, and there's 45 gallons of fuel on board that car at this stage of the race, and Suzuki gets going with the fire extinguisher. Next retired was Berger on lap four and in technical failure, followed by Moreno, whose suspension decided to part company with his Benetton, putting him into a spin and ending his day on lap ten. Unbeknownst to the cameras, which were busy focusing on Moreno, Prost lost two positions, falling to sixth as a lazy and PK swooped by. Satoru Nakajima scraped the barrier at turn five, damaging his Tyrrell suspension and forcing him to pit for potential suspension damage. Bertrand Gasho did a full 360 at the chicane, but miraculously everyone managed to avoid him. Johnny Morbidelli's retirement lap 20 after a spin caused a multitude of problems his Minardi was stuck in the middle of the track, forcing the cars to slalom around it, racing speed. Fortunately, of that incident, Martin Brundle was next out with an engine failure on lap 21, whilst Mika Hakkinen became the latest victim of the final chicane, spinning into retirement on the same lap. Four laps later, Senna cruised into retire with a busted alternator, with the slowing McLaren costing a lazy time, making him vulnerable to wide old PK. And Ayrton Senna is in trouble. Yes, it looked as if there was a mistake from a lazy because the lazy seemed to slow in front of both of them and they swept past and that's Senna's car so Senna has slowed down maybe he tripped them up as he went to slow but that certainly looked like a box full of neutral Senna seemed to be fumbling for gears there The Defoe's gloating at Senna's retirement would come back to bite them as Prost parked his Ferrari in the front straight with a broken gearbox leaving a lazy to carry the Ferrari flag in third and the first of the big guns to stop for tyres Eric Bernard capped off LaRousse's expensive and smoky day on lap 29 with a gearbox failure, whilst Terry Bootson's engine failure on lap 27 meant that the French teams would be seemingly going away from Montreal, except for their budget being burnt to a crisp. Alesi was next to go out as if Ferrari V12 gave up the ghost at just under halfway, promoting Modena to fourth and Capelli to fifth before his Ilmore engine gave up the ghost on lap 42. And it's a puncture, right rear puncture, look! Look, he's lap 41 in the 69 lap race and Ricardo Patrese is going to lose his second position. That means to say that Nelson Piquet in the Benetton Ford B8 will go up into second place. Indeed, he's done so while I'm talking to you. But Nigel Mansell is racing victoriously on his way. The car handling beautifully, the Renault V10 engine sounding superb. Nigel is pacing himself. And that is Nelson Piquet, now in second position. JJ Leto's hopes of scoring points for Delara turned to dust when his Judd engine just expired, whilst the Finn was running fourth with just 19 laps to go. Leto's loss was Jordan's gain, as now Andre Tijestris and Gasho moved into the points, with the Italian veteran holding the Belgium at bay, as the team inched closer, 
to moving out of pre-qualifying after the British Grand Prix. As the race approached its final lap, Mansell led by a country mile over P.K. Modner, who was on course to take a well-deserved podium for the Tyrrell team. Nigel Mansell goes through now to start his last victorious 2.7-mile laps. He's waving to the crowd. He's going to win again. He's... He's taking the hairpin very... He's stopping! Nigel Mansell, just a few hundred yards from the flag on the last lap. He's stopping, he's banging his steering wheel in frustration. Something has happened, it looks as though he's out of the race. And Mansell had done the unthinkable, snatch defeat from the jewels of victory. Amidst all the initial chaos, Italia Uno commentator Andrei Diadmic exploded with delight as he initially thought that Modena was going to win and become the first Italian race winner since Michele Alboreto in 1985. But after being told otherwise, he briefly ranted about Mansell's unprofessionalism as the cameras waited for the new leader. Sadly for Mansell, it wasn't Modna, but it was his old nemesis, Piquet, a man who once upon a time had previously called the Brit an uneducated blockhead and his wife Rosanna ugly, who was now going to inherit the win as he laughed all the way home to take Benetton's first win of the year, with Modna second, Patrese third, and the two Jorns fourth and fifth, to Cesare's head of Gasho. Mansell finished 6th, not that they cared too much. Mansell blamed an electrical failure for his last lap retirement, but some argued that by waving to the crowd, he let the revs drop too low, causing his Renault engine to stall. Whatever the reason was for the retirement, it proved that the old phrase to finish first, first you have to finish, still rang true, with the loss of 10 points in calendar derailing Mansell's slim title hopes, which ended with a spin in Suzuka, whilst chasing Senna, who cruised home to win his third world championship and the last for a Honda-powered car until Max Verstappen dramatically clinched the 2021 World Championship. For PK Modena, this was as good as it got. As the Italian's F1 career fizzled out after a move to Jordan failed to bear fruit, whilst PK left the sport at the end of the year after losing his status as Benetton's number one driver to a young German who had spent the first half of the year driving for Mercedes in sports cars. Michael Schumacher. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As always, we love walking down memory lane with you, Mr. Spencer. Very interesting one from you this week. Well, you know me, I always like to surprise. And I thought, since we were looking at, you know, ways, creative ways to lose races, I thought this would be the best one to show and um, share. And unfortunately for Nigel Mantle, it's probably one that's he doesn't really want to be asked about time and time again. And also, Nelson Piquet's final Formula One win before Schumacher came in and basically stole his throne. I thought I'd be the comments that he made about um, Mr. and Mrs. Mantle to show how much hatred there was between the, the pair. These two despised each other and would not like to be in the same room for each other with the hatred between the two. It's one thing to insult the man, it's another to address his wife. I was gearing up for yet another tedious rerun of what happened in 2011 in Canada. So thank you so, so much for picking 
one other Canadian Grand Prix than the one that everyone bangs on about every time this venue's discussed. It was a tough decision because I was very tempted to go with 95. Ed Spencer does like to keep it spicy for us. But now, gents, out of the past and into the present, it is time for news of the week. Now, my news item this week that I would like to discuss is this. Sebastian Vettel has rejected calls for a salary cap to be imposed on F1 drivers and instead suggested a team profit cap in which excess earnings go into a pool for good causes, which is a very Seb Vettel thing to do, I think. I mean, interesting that he has absolutely no desire to impose a salary cap on himself. But is it a nice idea to force teams to donate some of their profits to charitable causes? What do we think? Yeah, good suggestion for Seb. I think, and I also think the driver salary cap is a bit pathetic. I mean, in no other time has there ever been a call for drivers to have their salaries capped until the moment the teams start making a profit. So yeah, been this idea. Max also, Max also said he didn't agree with it. I'm sure the other 18 probably agree with both of them. Very true. It sometimes concerns me just how much diversity there is in the salaries of the drivers. Like Max Verstappen's new Red Bull contract, compare that to what the Haas boys are earning. And it's quite ridiculous for what seems like a very similar level of work, at least on the surface of it. But good old Seb, standing up for himself, but also delivering a full-on Uno reverse card to the FIA, holding them to account, as only Sebastian Vettel would do. It also kind of makes a mockery of the cost cap. Uh, The whole idea of the cost cap in the first place was... You can spend whatever you like on your drivers and your top three executives. It's everything else. And it's very weird that the FIAs seem to be completely unwilling to make any changes to the cost cap, despite inflation, despite the rising costs of getting the cars to the actual Grand Prix. And yet they'd impose a driver salary cap that would not remedy the problem. I mean, just imagine in 1995, you go and tell Michael Schumacher, you want 30 million, but we have a salary cap. Would you mind having 1 million? Let's regulate how much the team principals earn because I'm it's pointless, really. Very true, very true. Mr. Spencer, what is your news item of the week? So, Mick Schumacher is under a bit of pressure and he's now getting a little bit more stick, this time from Christian Danner, who said in an earlier time in Formula One, Mick Schumacher would be gone and saying that he needs to stop crashing. The boss is allowed to say, now stop crashing. Although Gunther Seiner says that the media is playing against everyone at heart. A striking interview on Sky Sports Deutschland. I do. I feel for Mick a little bit because he does seem, um, you know, he's sweet. He's like a little baby rabbit or something or a lamb. He's very sweet. But I mean, his performance is lacking for sure. Um, Haas does seem to have been slightly derailed from how well they were doing at the beginning of the season. They came out all guns blazing and now just seems to have fallen a bit flat and they're struggling a bit. But hopefully the team itself can turn things around. It'd be nice to see. Joe, what is your news item of the week? Well, my personal news item of the week is that you've managed to mention Mick Schumacher without referring to Sebastian Vettel as his track daddy. So I'm glad to see some personal growth on your end. This isn't actually a specific... Track daddy! Short short term memory. Um, It's not necessarily a Formula One story exclusively, but it's a positive motorsport story nonetheless. Um, Switzerland, some people may not know, have banned banned motorsport in 1955 after a massive crash at the Le Mans 24 hours. And the ban has been in place for 67 years. Besides a couple of Formula E races in the last few years, Switzerland has literally just not hosted motor racing at all. I believe this week, I'm reading articles as late as yesterday, the act in question has been remedied. Switzerland's ban on motor racing is over. It's it's now completely legal again. There are no permanent track facilities in Switzerland, so don't get your hopes up for a Swiss Grand Prix in the Bernese Alps anytime soon. But I think it's particularly pertinent to this show when we've been talking about porpoising. The most persuasive and effective reason why the Swiss government decided to overturn this were the massive improvements in both vehicle and route safety and the fact that this continues to be a trajectory moving forward and the more improvements are on the way. So yes, a very positive story. Uh, for Swiss motorsport. If we do not have a Swiss Grand Prix where the Rolex clock is replaced by a cuckoo clock at Dijon, I will be very, very disappointed. Let's have a Swiss Grand Prix now. So a Swiss Grand Prix that isn't in Switzerland. (laughs) I mean, 
I mean, we had, I mean, we had a Grand Prix. We had the Luxembourg Grand Prix being held in Germany for two years. Why not? Until they build the Geneva Autodrome. San Marino Grand Prix was in Imola for how long? I never said I defended it. It was 15, 15, 16 years, was it? No, 25, 26 years. I mean, I feel like I have heard us say many a time in many a a clubhouse room or a Twitter space that we want to see an ice race, a Grand Prix on ice. What better pace than Switzerland? Perhaps a San Moritz street race down the icy streets of San Moritz in the depths of winter. The Lint Swiss Grand Prix at San Moritz. Okay, I can go on top of that. I love to see it. I mean, it's it's like the it's like Monaco in the snow up there. I think it'd be the perfect place for a race. There you go. Another race to add to our list of fantasy dream Grand Prix locations, which are literally never going to happen ever, ever, ever. I'm looking forward to the day I can get an Alpine Parker special for the occasion. I, I, I would love this for you. I, I hope it happens. But now we're going to talk about a classic team. When a team wins in Formula One, it's normal to have the British, Italian or even French national anthems blasted on the podium. But for a brief while in the 70s, you may have been lucky enough to hear O Canada. Back then, coming into new money was often enough to set up your own team. Although Lawrence Stroll has done his best by acquiring Aston Martin, it's nowhere near as proud as a black and gold car with red maple leaves on the wings. This is the short story of a certain wolf. Canada may lack a sterling reputation when it comes to historic F1 drivers, but in the late 1970s, one Canadian team, formed almost overnight, started turning heads everywhere they went. Around the start of the decade, Austrian-Canadian businessman Walter Wolf made a fortune with North Sea oil endeavours, and by 1975 he'd made enough to get his feet wet in Formula One, financing Frank Williams' fledgling Grand Prix effort. As a 60% shareholder, Wolf kept Williams on as team manager, and before 1976 he'd also bought assets from the folding Hesketh and Embassy Hill teams, repurposing the former's cars under the eye of chief engineer Pete Poslethwaite. Fielding Jackie X and Michel Leclerc, different spelling, different nation, no relation, the Hesketh car running as a Williams was sadly uncompetitive, but after removing Williams from his role, Walter Wolf turned this disappointment into ambition, triggering a massive restructuring of the team with big name personnel and a future champion driver in South African Jody Schechter. Jody Schechter had surprised everyone by moving to a brand new team, Wolf. While Williams left to start the team that still exists today, Wolf got to work on the all-new WR1. Lighter, tighter and more conventional than what had come before, Schechter was immediately on the pace come 1977's first race in Argentina. However, no one could have expected just how on the pace the Wolf turned out to be. The Grand Prix got underway at 4pm local time, and despite that, the track temperature was in excess of 50 degrees Celsius. Add to that the fact that this was the first race of the season, it meant that abandonments were going to be numerous. And to sum up, everything plays into the incredible Jody Schechter's hands on board the Wolf. Well, in its very first race, the team belonging to this Canadian of Austrian origins, a specialist in offshore petrol research platform construction, won the race. One of the biggest surprises in the history of Formula One. The craziest and most shocking of wins was made all the scarier for the car's genuine front-running pace, as Wolf became only the third team ever to win on their debut. And things just kept getting better, as, after one retirement in Brazil, Wolf managed no fewer than four straight podiums. They were second in the constructors' standings with just the one car, and after a near-lights-to-flag victory in Monaco, Schachter was leading the drivers' championship. Typically, though, the North American car's Ford engine soon became very American indeed, responsible for two of four straight retirements, all but confirming Wolf wouldn't beat Ferrari to either title. Nonetheless, the still error-prone Schechter was fantastic on his day, tending to finish on the podium when he finished at all, and the team bowed out of 1977 in style, taking a home win at Mossport for the Canadian Grand Prix. Second in the championship for Schechter, and fourth in the team's rankings with just one entry, was above and beyond what Wolf could ever have expected. But, as circumstances often go in Formula 1, Wolf's peak would never be reached again. 
Against the lofty heights of the previous year, nothing could compare in 1978, and although the team were quick, there were no wins, nor pole positions, nor fastest laps. Villeneuve was busy squabbling for second place, with Jody Schechter again going strongly in the wolf. Schechter, however, was still a virtuoso behind the wheel and took no fewer than four podiums, and came close to repeating Wolf's prior home success, finishing second in Canada, the race now held in Montreal. After this, Schechter left for Ferrari, and for 1979, Wolf signed former champion James Hunt. For James Hunt, it's a swan song season. After six years of Formula One, he's announced his intentions to retire at the end of 1979. Whether or not he takes a second world title to add to his 1976 crown depends largely upon the relationship he strikes up with his new team after three seasons with McLaren. Who was now so disinterested in the sport that he retired before the season's halfway point. Keki Rosberg filled in until the end of the year, but that was all she wrote for Wolf. The new car, both uncompetitive and unreliable, prompted Wolf to sell up to Emerson Fittipaldi, and Canada's first and last F1 team didn't even make it beyond the decade. There's no denying that the Wolf team had amazing potential, and they could definitely have lasted far longer were it not for the whims of one single owner. And it's very fitting that we're going to the Canadian Grand Prix and we've mentioned Lawrence Stroll and his takeover of first racing point, now Aston Martin. So the Wolf Formula One team was Canadian money. Yes. They initially bought into a pre-existing sporting brand before making their own trails. Uh Aha. Okay. Number three, the leeching and big name signings of personnel from other teams to try and fast track their way to performance success. Okay, and then when it comes to signing a driver for the all-new team on their you know, new livery, new chassis, new debut, they go for a big champion, world driver's champion level signing. Is this or is this not the perfect prelude to what Aston Martin are doing right now? And if their trajectory is anything like Wolf's, this is not going to end well for them. This is going to end rather badly, I think, but let's hope not. Aston Martin's sake and all the good people who work at Team Stolkson. But I mean, the, the omens are there. Joe has just reeled them all off. The omens are there and they are bad, gentlemen. They are very bad. I mean, honestly, it's kind of amazing. A team that had so much success in a short while has had next to no impact on the sport going forward. It's one of those weird things that's a huge success but has no cultural consequences. The, the biggest significance of the Wolf Formula One team, honestly, is that in sacking Frank Williams, they started what we now know as the Williams Formula One team. And although they're not doing too great at the moment, they have had considerably more success than the Canadian New Money ever had. So yeah, the story of Wolf for however long it lasted. Not very long. But gents, it's time for everyone's favourite part of the podcast, and that is Plonker of the Week. And we've only got three of us on this week. So Royfield, producer Royfield, I'm going to be asking you for a Plonker of the Week as well. So get ready. But we're going to start with Mr. Spencer. Who is your Plonker of the Week, sir? Uh, oh God, it's tough because there is quite a few. Um... I would say the person in charge of ticketing at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, considering that there are so many races on the calendar that uh, Shannon's completely decided to end. When will it be a driver? Yeah. When? I'm too, I'm too nice to them. I'm too nice. I've already had one driver anyway. Look, the tickets, when, considering that Formula One rate, there's countries queuing up for Grand Prix. I could see the empty seats from a mile out. It's not good enough. The tickets are too expensive. They need to be cheapened. Because, let's be honest, if you're not getting a sellout in today's Formula 1, you're doing something wrong. So, the person in charge of ticketing at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, sort your act out. I mean, I agree with you that tickets should be cheaper. That is one point that I absolutely will back all day, every day. But, Mr. Spagnoli... What is your plonker of the week, sir? Well, Ed's usual obstinance means he's not going to name a driver, so I'll name a few for him. Lance Stroll, Mick Schumacher, Nicholas Latifi, they all had terrible weekends. However, they have all gone under the radar because, yet again, my pick isn't a driver, but I think I can be forgiven this week. 
the technical director of the Ferrari F1 Power Unit Division, Enrico Gualtieri. What was that this weekend? You are responsible for destroying the fortunes of three Formula One teams, not just your own. Iñaki Rueda for Monaco, Enrico Gualtieri for Baku. I think by the end of the season, we will have gone through the entire executive division of Scuderia Ferrari. We will have probably got to the cleaners by Abu Dhabi. My God, let's leave the cleaners out of this. They've done nothing wrong. But also another one that I would be very, very inclined to agree with there, Mr. Spagnoli. Producer Roy Field, do you have a plonker of the week? I do, and mine isn't that creative or that imaginative, actually. It's Nicholas Latifi. I think his time is up in the sport. I think he's a lovely guy. Everybody who works with him says he's one of the nicest human beings you can ever hope to meet. But we are in the piranha tank. This is um, dog eat dog, mixing my metaphors. And basically, he isn't cutting the mustard. Um, He did relatively well last year when compared to George Russell towards the end of the season. However, with this new generation of cars, he's all at sea. It's time for him to be put out of his misery. And I think the Canadian Grand Prix is going to be the last time we see him. Astro Piastri has been putting little notes, little cryptic notes on Instagram. Uh, I think the next race, his home race, is going to be Nicholas Latifi's last race. Controversial opinion alert. Um, I'm going to agree with a name that Joe has actually already mentioned, and that for me is Lance Stroll. That's my plonker of the week. How many times can one man crash? For the love of God, just keep the damn thing on the track. It's not going well. The only reason he's still in that seat is because daddy bought the team. It's, it's. I mean, we're never going to see it, but it's time for Lance Stroll to go. I think the only way that we'll get Lance Stroll out of this sport is if Lawrence Stroll is out of this sport, quite frankly. But for me, he is my plonker of the week. And I think that makes him the overall plonker of the week. Because, Joe, you did mention his name among others. So we do have a, a, a decisive decision this week. For once, we haven't all gone in completely different directions. We do have an overall plonker of the week. And it's you, Lance Stroll, on the week of your home race, no less. Hopefully he can perform a little bit better this time than he has been so far this season. But, gentlemen, that's all we have time for today on the podcast. That is it. It's over. It's done. We will see everyone next week after the Canadian Grand Prix. But I would invite you, dear listeners, to please give us a follow on Twitter at race underscore directors or like us on Facebook at the race directors podcast. Give us a follow there. We'll be posting memes, updates, thoughts. And of course, you'll be the first person to hear about it when a new podcast is launched. Do subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Leave us a review if you feel like it. And we will see you next week to talk about the Canadian Grand Prix. Say good night, gentlemen. What's well. Canadians, Shannon hates all of you in motorsport. Get your hockey sticks and pitchforks. Where did we get this from? Shannon also hates poutine. She hates the smell of it. Why are we throwing me under the Canadian bus here? What have I ever done to Canadians? Because chivalry is dead. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.